All right. Happy Tuesday, everyone. I am back with a special episode of Learning Tech Talks, and we are really going to be exploring the landscape of learning tech in this one. I'm looking forward to it, but we're going to be cutting through the fluff, simplifying what may feel like complicated topics for the benefit of you as we as we dive into this. So I am joined by, and I'm and I'm going to say it in my Midwestern kid, <laughs> kid style, Michael Warnu, but you're going to now tell me how to actually say it if I lived in Belgium. Mikael Orno, but it's very close. So, so. <laughs> very close. I, that's very kind of you to say Michael Warnu yeah. is very close to that. But uh, yeah. So anyway, so we are joined. I'm joined by Michael today, and we're going to be talking about. I, I don't even honestly know the best way to articulate this because while we're talking about skills data and the way. AI, specifically NLP, is actually allowing us to gain some insights and, and visibility into this stuff. We're going to be going in a lot of different directions. So I think you know, if this is a new topic for you, you're going to want to pay close attention because I think you're going to get a lot out of this. I know I am. I'm looking forward to it because this is such an important topic. And even if you're feeling like, but what does this have to do with L&D? I can promise you, you're going to see the connections. We're, we're going to dial this all together. But before we do, it wouldn't be learning tech talks if we didn't start with a little bit of fun. So the first one, and I think I actually kind of spoiled it in the pronunciation of your name. But anyway, everybody can play along with this one. So you can comment in and join join the fun here. But Michael, where are you in the world today? At the moment, I'm in Ghent, Belgium. Belgium. It's a, okay. a very small country in Europe. All right. Yep. I, well, I, I'm familiar. I'm familiar. Haven't been there, but I uh, am familiar. And honestly, it's it's. I said good morning to you when you joined. And then I went, nope, nope wrong the time zone things always coming uh, up so I'm, I'm here in milwaukee where it is heating up it is going to be a balmy 40 degrees fahrenheit today the snow is rapidly melting and i cannot wait to be able to send the kids outside <laughs> <laughs> spring is in the air i can i can feel it all right now before we get into it one last icebreaker question i'm actually really looking forward to the answer to this and again if you're watching play along. It, it'll be fun. I'm interested to see your responses. But Michael, what is one appliance you could not live without? And I'm looking forward to seeing where you went with this. I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure my teammates are going to hate me for this, but I'm going to say an air fryer. I, uh, I recently <laughs> bought one and I'm uh, definitely a converted one at the moment. I can't live without my, uh, without my air fryer. <laughs> The air, I was not an air fryer. <laughs> yes, uh, a month now, and uh, honestly, best thing I uh, I bought in uh, well a few months. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, do so? Do you make like anything you can in this thing? Yes, that's that's the pitch, but <laughs> you have to be careful not to uh, make this a podcast about air fryers because uh, I will do yeah, so if you let me. You can't live without. We're going to end up spending an hour talking about all your new air fryer recipes. Okay, all right, all right. No, I can see that. Mike, Mike said his coffee machine. That's I. All right, we got we got a French press. So mine is going to be a little bit different. Um, and it's just very pragmatic in this sense. The air fryer, I don't know that that's pragmatic. I don't know if you actually couldn't live without it, but I think hypothetically, maybe you couldn't, I don't know. So I actually went back and forth on this and I thought it, mine was going to be something in the kitchen. And then if, if you'd asked me maybe two years ago, I would have said that. And then we remodeled our kitchen and COVID hit and nobody could come do any of the work and we had nothing <laughs> And turns out you can live without your kitchen. I mean, you eat a lot of things that can be thrown in the microwave or cold, but um, you, you can live without a lot of kitchen appliances. The one, though, that I don't think we could tolerate was our washer and dryer went out. Oh, That was the worst. With five kids trying to get to the laundromat and do it. No way. No way. I would never, never, never do it again. Um, I would call someone or go to the neighbors if that ever, ever happened again. <laughs> That's fair. That's very fair. <laughs> so anyway, all right. Well, we've had some fun with that, but now let's let's shift gears over into the conversation on this. So we're talking about this whole skills AI. We've got lots of buzzwords. We're going to have all sorts of buzzwords that we're going to be putting into this one, but hopefully we'll unpack this and really make it pragmatic and practical for folks. But before we do, let's let's get a little bit into the history of this, of TechWolf, because 
you're one of the co-founders. All right, you, you started this thing, and I just have to know where did that come from? Did you just always know that AI for skills data was <laughs> was going to be your thing growing up? No, 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 no. I didn't. Uh, I didn't wake up at, uh, as a five year old and uh, and tell myself I'm going to be uh, an HR tech entrepreneur. So. Uh, Myself and uh, the two other founders have a background in computer science, and the original idea was to match students to well, relevant jobs. Uh, we built technology for that, started building out uh, that software, that solution, and started selling that to recruitment and staffing vendors. Uh, but just being in the industry uh, made us notice that the technology we had built could solve well a really big problem in, in enterprise. So. That made us slightly pivot towards the, the enterprise market. We're still, we're still active in, uh, in employment and staffing, but the main focus at the moment is really solving the big problems in, uh, in enterprise uh, with the, the core technology we built. Uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, let me let me get this. So in the initial, who is your target audience? Because I get, so you were helping students work toward, or originally the plan was, hey, we can help originally, students. Originally. Originally, that was the plan. And so you were working, were you working directly with students and companies? How did that work? No, so we very, very, very quickly uh, pivoted from that idea. Okay, to, so hey, very quickly, you're like, hey, easier. we got this idea. And you went, you know what? We've got something <laughs> way more valuable we could be doing with this, way bigger, and pivoted. No, so we, we started building the technology to match students to jobs. And then we realized why 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 are we only matching uh, students? And then we just started selling the technology uh, okay. because we didn't necessarily want it to be a, a a staffing agency. We wanted to be a technology company, so focus on technology. Uh, but we noticed very quickly that we're solving a big problem: the 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 mapping of skills and being able to understand someone's skill set. That was a, a, a universal problem and definitely uh, not a problem restricted to employment setting. So. Okay, got it, got it. Well, and I and I think, so I'm actually curious, what, what was that aha moment in that sense? Because I think sometimes when people think about mapping jobs to, to, you know, mapping people to jobs, they aren't necessarily thinking quite as deeply about the actual skills underneath it. It might be keywords associated with job descriptions or things like that, but what was it that you went, whoa, we can be doing way more with this? Conversations uh, we had with people in the enterprise. Uh, we were showing our technology uh, then focused on matching. And they, say, they said, wait a minute, did you just say that you could uh, map <laughs> so, skills? So you're sitting here pitching <laughs> yeah. this thing and you're going, hey, we've got this idea and they're going, would this be able to do that as well? And suddenly the wheels started turning and you went, here's the big, here's the big elephant in the room that all these enterprise leaders are struggling with. And actually, yes, this is actually a perfectly transferable opportunity for this. Exactly. And and then we just went along with it. We had more conversations and then we really saw that knowing the skills you have in your organization or knowing the capability uh, capabilities you have was the crucial problem we could solve. And, and okay. that was uh, a no-brainer then. Which, by the way, is a huge problem for organizations. <laughs> like massive. By the way. <laughs> in, in case anybody wasn't aware, this is like massive. This is on the top of many, many, many executive level priority lists where the lack of visibility into this is keeping many a person up at night. So we'll we'll talk more about you know this problem set, but I do want to really kind of simplify this down because it can be. How, how, what does that look like? Like, let's make this simple for people in terms of the process because you can hear skills data AI. Like, oh my goodness, how how is this working? So how are you actually using the power of of AI or which we're we're going to talk about? You're using natural language processing to do this, but what does that actually look like so that people have a better understanding of how does this work? Mm -hmm. I think to, to truly understand where AI comes in, it's good to zoom out first. So sure. what we do today is, is AI-based strategic workforce planning. So let's start with a definition of strategic workforce planning. And I really like the definition Aaron Ross gave in his book. It's a framework for analyzing both the current and desired future states of the workforce. There's many definitions, but what we typically see is that there are four core steps uh, to, to workforce planning. One crucial step, of course, knowing what you have in-house, knowing your talent supply, using talent demand to contextualize that information, detecting skill gaps, and then getting to workforce actions 
whether you should buy builder or and so on uh, or poorly specific uh, skill gap so i think when you're then zooming in uh, again where does artificial intelligence uh, come into play in a few areas but i think the, the most straightforward one is simply by interpreting the the boss amount of uh, unstructured uh, data and uh, i'm going to quote someone else here uh, adam mckinnon he said that uh, if that finance is the, the home of numbers then hr is the home of text so what we do is interpret unstructured information about yeah. employees and transform that to skills and that's what uh, natural language understanding is all about. Okay. So I, I actually really like that analogy. If numbers is to find it, right? Numbers in finance, HR is is words. And when you really think about the space we're in, it's all all of our currency is words. It's it's how we describe people. It's how we describe the work that's getting done. It's how we describe the priorities, which we have we have a lot of that, I think. <laughs> But I'm curious, as you're thinking about this now, I think sometimes, and, and this is kind of the next step in the conversation, is when you think about that, sometimes I think it's, it's easy to think about, well, when we talk about this text data, this language data, whatever, whatever we have, we're limited to maybe our HR systems or our LMS or something like that. But that's not, our, that's not necessarily it. And again, that tells one point of view but from my perspective, when you're trying to assess, hey, what's really going on in the org or what makes up Christopher or Michael, that's not the whole picture. So how are you then you know, capturing some of these other data points to create that holistic thumbprint of the organizational skills? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a number of data sources and it's really an, an incremental story. So what okay. we typically see is that we, we use the information in the HRIS to get a really solid baseline. Uh, and then you look at specific business units to see what the other data sources are, or the other functional departments, what the other data sources are that could be used to enrich that data. So for example, within IT, that could be something like Confluence or other knowledge bases, uh, which gives you insight in the articles people share, the articles people write, the knowledge that they're actively using. So that then enables you to refine the image uh, of the skill set you have of, of individuals today. So it's really dependent upon the, the functional department that you're in. But what we typically see is that there's, well, the, the standard data sources, uh, things like SharePoint uh, or other textual sources that can be used and then uh, well, are used to refine the, the, the uh, skill uh, okay. fingerprints we uh, we derived from the HRIS data. I have data. a follow-up question to that. I told you I was going to cut you off and interrupt when you were saying things, which is fine, because we'll, we'll come back to this. But I'm curious on this. So starting with the HR, our side of things is, is a starting point, but I'm interested when you're working with organizations on this, are they immediately jumping to the enterprise or is it more of a step step process where you go, let's, let's tackle this for maybe one function first. I'm just curious from a process standpoint, how are people finding success in that? Cause it, I personally, I can see that feeling a little bit overwhelming to go, all right, let's solve this for the entire company in the first round. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it really depends on, on who we work with in the organization. So, for example, if there's a project within people analytics and that's something uh, we see more and more, okay. uh, then they just say, going we, on. we want this yesterday, right? Uh, so, and they typically have the data infrastructure. Uh, and then we typically work with a static data dump and we can give them like a photo, a, a snapshot of what they have in the organization. Of course, you want to go to continuous skill tracking because people leave, people join, people learn new skills and so on and so forth. Uh, and then when you're looking at solving very specific problems or you have a project focusing on a very specific people, then we typically start uh, with mapping those skills. So it really depends. Uh, I think the, the, the main advantage of using AI is that you can scale to the entire organization instantly. For, for our solution or our model, it doesn't really make a difference if you're starting with 1,000 people or with 100,000 people at the same time. That's fair. That's well, and and I remember when we were, you know, originally had met and had this conversation. This was that was one of the things that we talked about. Is this is one of the benefits of using AI for this? Is that it doesn't it doesn't wear out. It doesn't go. I don't have capacity to crunch another hundred thousand employees' numbers right now. I'm a little bit tired, or I need the weekend off. It's it's able to move through this much quicker but i was just curious more so if you're seeing benefits to one way or the other on that or you know how are you making sense of that because 
I have to imagine there's a fair amount of stuff popping up as you're doing this. I like the photo, you know, the photograph analogy of, okay, so you take all this data, you pull it together, you analyze it and you create this snapshot or this, you know, picture of the organization are, are, is what's the accuracy? I mean, how close is that coming to things or are you having to fine tune and dial things back based on what you discover? Mm -hmm. So typically what we see is, especially when we get started, uh, let's say we start anywhere uh, between 3,000 and 10,000 employees, especially okay. if you want to have to convince uh, senior leaders to invest in, uh, well, knowing the skills uh, in, in the organization. And then typically what we see is that just giving that initial snapshot and showing what you can do with that skill data, uh, well, opens the eyes of, of many people. <laughs> visualizing where skill gaps are, visualizing where innovation capability in organization is, those are all strategic topics uh, that can be well uh, reiterated back or, or, or coupled to uh, knowing uh, your skills. Okay. Yeah, I can't imagine there's probably too many instances. I can see trying to get conceptually get people to get on board with it, not even that I struggle with because of how high priority of an item it is. But I can't imagine you ever show somebody that photograph of here's your heat map of the skills, the opportunities and where you need to go. And somebody goes, I don't really know that we need that right now. I'm not really sure that that's something that we're struggling with. OK, well, if it happens, um, <laughs> if it happens, <laughs> if it happens, um, I think that's where the, the, the second part of the technology comes in is you ideally want to use the skill profile to run simulations. And essentially, a simulation would be matching one employee or hundreds, employee, hundreds of employees to, let's say, thousands of jobs. And in that way, you can actually uh, try to, or you are running scenarios. You can see, okay, what are gaps that are returning? Uh, can I, for example, if we're looking at the level of analysis of one employee, uh, match this particular employee to all the open vacancies uh, in uh, my organization or can i uh, match him or her to specific roles that are adjacent to the current role or even just a, a general uh, cross-section of the job market and that way you can actually get a, a really good understanding of how future proof uh, or what the general demand is of someone's skill set so it's actually combining that skill data with like a, a talent matching engine and running simulations that can actually get you to that strategic insight. Okay. So, well, that, and that's that's what I was gathering from what you're saying. But yeah, that makes sense. So the initial piece is you're pulling this desperate data together. You're kind of creating your one one time analysis to create this blueprint of hey, here's here's what the skill data is looking like. Here's what we're seeing. Things like that. And then you're taking that to further validate. Hey, how could we actually run this through running? Now, what are you doing that way? Are you you said you're time you're connecting with. You know, are you is TechWolf doing that? Are you partnering with their maybe you know talent another platform to kind of run some of these scenarios along the way to see how could we actually solve some of these challenges? How's that? How's yeah. that working? Yeah, typically, and that's where we find the, our allies in the, in the people analytics sphere is that we work, work really closely with with people analytics. And what we want to be is a skill infrastructure because what yeah. we see is that you have the talent marketplaces and the core HR systems and every other HR tool now having their own skill cloud or skill taxonomy, but they're all talking a different language. So if yeah. you don't have any underlying infrastructure, just basic reporting, it doesn't work. Doesn't so, work. Exactly. Can I just stop you there and say that is such yeah. an important, like that is such an important point that it was why in 2020 when I was talking about this as an opportunity, this is this is one of those forest through the trees moments that I think is really important for people to see is that, yes, our, these systems have a lot of these capabilities. The, the challenge is that they're speaking a different language and they aren't tying back together. And so now what I'm seeing as a trend is we're seeing just pockets of all this stuff popping up all over the place. But because there's no there's no infrastructure underneath or universal framework. Exactly. It's not having the potential that I think it could because now all this data is locked in silos and it's not actually it's one thing's telling us this story. Something else is telling us this story. And if mm -hmm. there's just no human capacity to go around and listen to all the stories to try and figure it out. Exactly. And that's, again, where natural language processing is such an um, amazing tool or such an, an amazing advancement in technology 
is you can not only uh, well link all of the different taxonomies to one another, you can actually move towards a data-driven skill framework. So essentially, why does every uh, job architecture or, or skill framework project either take two years or fail? It's because as soon as, yeah, I'm being really blunt here, but. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? These things are wild successes. <laughs> you have to start over once you're finished. And, and it, it just doesn't scale. So what we're doing uh, with, with some of our customers is actually saying, okay, use labor market data to get an idea of uh, what is changing in your market, what the upcoming skills are. Uh, and ideally, that, that's something you want to well, let happen by an algorithm because nobody wants to do manual research on new skills that are popping up. That's not part of, of your job, maybe in a strategy function. So let, again, AI do the heavy lifting, interpret, uh, well, labor market data uh, reports, uh, other papers, see what is happening, see what technology is, is emerging, and let them do suggestions or let those algorithms do suggestions on, on what skills should be included in, in your taxonomy or in your framework. Uh, and, and we really see that that approach is, is one that is a lot more future-proof. Okay. Well, and this gets to the point where sometimes... I think people fear the tech a little bit more than they need to, right? They're, we're a little bit scared, like, oh, the, you know, the AI is going to be doing this work for us. And it's not even just the way you articulated it. This isn't just set it and forget it like your air fryer. <laughs> my air fryer. <laughs> right? It's not that, though. That's not what we're talking about. It's that use the artificial intelligence to do this just incomprehensible legwork that would be impossible to do. Don't just let it make all the decisions and figure this stuff out. Use it to then feed you with the insights and these different trends so you can actually use your critical thinking skills to say, okay, based on this warehouse of data that I never would have had the chance to actually analyze, here's the stuff that then bubbled to the surface in terms of trends, patterns, things like that that I can now analyze and say, okay, based on our core strategy, based on these different things, based on what we're trying to do, what are the ones that are most impactful? And then now I can make, like you said, database decisions on those insights, which to me is a better use of our time than Google searching, you know, or scouring access databases of job market data. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's and just you. No, it's it definitely because um, it, let's let's take a, gl a global trend and industry 4.0, and then we have people asking us, but okay, what is industry 4.0? What what skills, capabilities, jobs, roles are attached to industry 4.0? And just being able to do that translation to actually tell people, okay, these are the skills you need to be focusing on yeah, from a learning and development point of view, but even from a hiring or, or internal mobility uh, point of view, and knowing what skills are actually related to that high level concept. Just that is already tremendously valuable. So again, uh, natural language processing uh, in HR is going to be one of the biggest trends uh, in, in, the, in the coming years. Yeah, I think when people say like the impact of AI on HR, out of the different disciplines of it, to me, I, I agree with you that I think that's probably the one that is just going to massively, massively transform the work we do. Just given the fact there's so much stuff we just can't do anything with, mm -hmm. not enough days days in the year or years in our lifetime to actually get through it. Now, on that though, I, I am curious how organizations are dealing with this because to me, this is one of the risks or areas that we have to be at least somewhat careful of is when we start talking about this skill data it's, it's easy to talk about it as this just kind of, you know, amorphous thing that's like, oh, it's over here. But this is real people's, inf I mean, this is people's, in some cases, their identity, their inner workings. Like, what do they know? What do they need to know? How do they operate? That's pretty personal data that we're dealing with. And I feel like as people's data acumen and digital acumen continues to rise, there's this growing awareness that, hey, my data is actually valuable and precious. And I need to be more cognizant or careful with that. So this is something that I think, especially in HR, we need to be mindful of that. How do you think? So I'm curious, how are you managing that with organizations? Because I can see getting into some real dicey territory if you're not careful with this. And mm -hmm. while you might get you might get legal to sign off on it and go, we're probably fine. 
doesn't necessarily mean morally or ethically this is territory that you want to dive in. And I'm not saying this area in general. I'm saying there are going to be topics or things you're going to get into where you go, I don't know that we should go here with this. But I'm curious how you're working through that with orgs. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's every technology that can be used for good can be used for bad. Uh, so it's I think, not the technology's well, fault. <laughs> damn. <laughs> That's not what I'm <laughs> to say. Uh, but, <laughs> let, me, let me finish my sentence. <laughs> let me finish I'm going to quote sentence. you on that. I'm going to clip that and go, look what Michael said. <laughs> um, so and the second thing we say is, it's about decision support, not decision making. Uh, and ideally, you'd uh, well make sure that everyone that uh, you're working with knows that it's for decision support. It's for broadening uh, your perspective and not just making a decision for you. That's one. And then just making sure that there's awareness around bias in uh, AI, especially when you're using uh, deep learning. Typically, what you'll do is you'll train an algorithm to uh, learn from past data. And typically, those are past decisions. Uh, and, and let's say we all know there are some biases and Daniel uh, Kahneman uh, showed that we have a lot of biases. So essentially you are training algorithms to reproduce those biases. So th that's a very, very tricky uh, area and awareness obviously is one. And we, we are very strict here at the company. So there, there, there are projects that we will not do because obviously uh, it, it, it doesn't uh, take a, a genius to figure out that if you uh, can run those simulations can also be used for things that are you know, that aren't uh, that nice. So uh, awareness and then a, a strong sense of, of responsibility as well. Okay. Well, and I think this is where, when I talk about this topic, I think there's just, there's an ethical and moral, moral obligation to us as HR leaders to really take this seriously. And I think your points are valid, which is one, you have to be aware of this stuff. You And this is why to me, it's so important that do you need to understand how to write an NLP algorithm to be an HR leader? No, I, I don't think that's a requirement. But should you fundamentally understand how some of these things work and how deep learning works so that at a high level, you can understand that, hey, if we throw really bad data or really bad decisions that we've made in the past and we're using that to train our AI on things, all we're going to do is rapidly accelerate and expand the bad decisions we're going to make moving forward. So how are exactly. we actually balancing that? So what are some ways that you're that organizations are, are balancing that. Cause I mean, personally, I'm familiar enough with the space to know that you can, you know, counteract some of this stuff, but are there some just practical ways that organizations looking to tread into this territory can be mm -hmm. thinking about this to ensure you don't end up somewhere and go, what, what did we just do? Well, uh, well here in Europe, we have work councils. So uh, all those projects uh, get vetted by such a work council, which okay. I think makes perfect sense. Uh, and then the second thing is just making sure that uh, employees, uh, employees get uh, skill visibility, again, visibility in that skill data. Uh, ideally, when you're uh, predicting skills, you, you push that, and that's, that's what we do. We push that to the systems uh, that the employees use, and then they can give feedback on that, and the algorithm gets better uh, as, we, as we go. So making sure that the employees know it's happening, and making sure that they have visibility in the skills that are being predicted, and then I think the, the worst council just in general as a as a, a general way of making sure uh, that the things you do make sense and are actually used for good uh, or the, the three things we see. Okay. So I actually want to dial that one back because I'm curious about this one, you know, in this space with, with the end user in mind, you know, what is their role in terms of, of validating or, you know, how, how are they playing in this? Because again, I think this is one of those things where it can be easy to get so caught up in, hey, let's just do this. This is exciting. It's great. We're going to jump down this path. And wow, look at all these great insights we have. And then you find out down the road, oops, we never validated this with the actual people we were trying to do this. So what role does that end user play in the process? Mm -hmm. well, it, it plays a very, very important role. Uh, so what we see is that depending on the data, we can get quite high accuracy. Uh, so for some preliminary uh, analyses, uh, we can uh, well pause the the employee validation for a while, but as soon as it gets really used, as soon as you're using it for recommendation, as soon as you're using it for personalization, let's say it only makes sense uh, that you that you ask for feedback. So typically, when you make that photo, it wouldn't make sense to ask all these employees. For oh feedback. yeah. <laughs> uh, when 
But when we're doing the implementation, typically, uh, we, maybe a little bit of context first. So we're uh, a, a, a back-end layer that scale infrastructure. So we, we don't have a front-end uh, at TechVault. So we use the, the employee systems. That could be uh, something like success factors, could be an employee experience layer, doesn't really matter. To push the skill information we predict to those systems so the employees can give, give feedback there. Because essentially, all those systems need skill data to work uh, properly. Uh, and all these systems have functionality for a talent profile. It just doesn't get completed. So uh, notifying employees that skill data is present, that skill data is used for personalization, we see even triggers people to complete the information because they don't have to start from a blank sheet. Okay. Uh, so. Okay. So instead of asking, and, and again, I think this is, and then that's now then feeding back into deep learning to say, okay, hey, here's what we thought. This was the feedback we now got. Now that's better informing our decisions along the way. Exactly. Over time, we're making smarter decisions. So that makes sense. Because yeah, I can imagine if you're just showing the general population, the general category of skills, it's just gonna it's gonna be too much. They're not gonna know what to react to. And I think a lot of times people do a better job reacting to things of, hey, we analyzed your data. These were the opportunities that came up. These were the skills we, we identified. These are some of the opportunities we saw for you. Is this accurate, right? Do, do you feel, do you agree in general with this? So they have the opportunity to go, no, or that's not anywhere close. I'm, I am curious though, because <laughs> this is the thing I'm a little bit interested in on is, I feel like sometimes we don't always like what AI shows us because it actually shows us the stuff that we wouldn't necessarily see in ourselves because we're not even quite as self-aware of our own patterns of behavior. Or, I mean, you can even just look at data in terms of people's personal assessments of what they're good at versus what they're not. Sometimes isn't always accurate. So I am curious how you balance that too, because it'd be easy yep. to go, no way. That's not me. I'm I'm great at everything. And it's like, well, not according to the data, you're not. Mm -hmm. Well, ideally, uh, and of course, that's a wishful thinking scenario. You get full 360 feedback on your on your okay. skill profile. What we typically see is that there's like a manager or a peer also looking at it. Does this make sense? Especially if you're looking at self-assessment or, or feedback of uh, a particular individual on his or her skill set. Um, then ideally you, you want a, a second pair of eyes to actually know, especially again, if it's going to be used for decision-making, if it's going to be used to assign you to certain projects, you want that information to be validated. If you want to do high-level analyses, uh, yeah, you can just uh, well, look and use the data. And, and that's, I think, where AI uh, comes in again. You statistically know that the data you infer, especially on, 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 on large populations, is going to be accurate enough to, like, let's say, uh, pinpoint high-level gaps okay. in your uh, okay. organization. So it really boils down to, and I think this is one of the things, it's what decisions are you using this data to make? Exactly. Right? That's, that's the big question I think that you would want to be asking as a leader is, how granular are we looking to go with this? And that's going to define how far down the chain in validation do we want to go? Is this going to actually impact an individual user's development or career trajectory? Or are we using this more at a macro level to say, hey, what are some big areas of opportunity in our organization that we want to focus on? Now, depending on the answer to that question, you're going to spend different amounts of time validating data, validating different scenarios, things like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yes. two questions did come in that I'm going to bring up. The first one is from Colin. Colin, you're showing up as LinkedIn user, so I'm not sure why. But anyway, so he's talking about the quality of the output coming from NLP. So he's he's been involved in the space for a while. The And even I've seen this. NLP has come a long way, but you're the expert in this space. So I'm actually really curious because several years ago, five years ago even, you know, there was a lot of noise and it. I think there were some bad things that happened or some poor decisions made that did give it a little bit of a reputation. So how have you yeah. seen the maturity of this progress over the last few years? Yeah, good question. So NLP, and I think that's where the, the confusion might stem from, has been around since, let's say, the 2000s. People have been processing natural languages, uh, natural language. Um, but let's say two, three, four years ago, it became more natural language understanding, where you actually try to interpret text. And if you look at the, the advancement uh, advancements that, that have been made, uh, well, anywhere in, in natural language processing, 
it's it's been amazing. You have things like GPT-3 and other uh, models released by Google that can give you a high level overview of how good these algorithms uh, have become. And of course, uh, here uh, at uh, or in Ghent, we have uh, Jeroen. Uh, Jeroen went uh, went to Cambridge, studied natural language processing there, and Cambridge is the university for natural language processing. Uh, so you get the best uh, professors and, and the best talent pool uh, to teach Jeroen uh, natural language processing, and then we can apply that in skill data. So it's making sure that you have that state of the art uh, or, or those state of the art designs, and then applying that to skill data uh, that can actually make a, a big difference. But I definitely uh, recommend to uh, to look at things like GPT three just to get a feel for how good uh, algorithms. Uh, in, in natural language processing. Uh, I like the distinguishment you made, though, in that in, in the early days, it really was more of natural language processing, where it was, it can analyze it very quickly, but it doesn't necessarily understand what it was analyzing. It was it was identifying keywords or looking for trends or things like that, but it was exactly. very exactly. robotic, very robotic in, in the maturity of it. And I think that's where, at that time, yeah, it was a little riskier to be, you know, how you were leveraging it because it wasn't necessarily understanding what it was processing. It was just looking for things like that. And I think now your point, which is a good one, is we're moving more towards, did we just create a new category of AI right here on the show? Natural language understanding, NLU. It already exists. It already exists. I'm not going oh, to create right, that okay. name. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, no, but you make a very fair point, though. Uh, if you look at just keyword expression, that, that essentially that was what it was a few years ago. And right now you can actually look at sentences and skills don't even have to be mentioned literally. You can just infer them from, from the sentence. And then you have like an, another layer on top where you actually model the relationships of words. So for example, today an algorithm can know that digital marketing and search engine advertising are related and that uh, Java and Python are programming languages. Those are things that, that algorithms can learn by themselves by just uh, learning and interpreting uh, data. And that's really where, where I think the, the biggest strides uh, have been made. They actually know and understand meaning of skills and capabilities and competencies now. And this, what, what, see, we're going to go down this rabbit hole a little bit, because I think some of the, some of the skepticism that I'll see from, you know, individuals on this topic, especially if they're still thinking about NLP and just that keyword type thing, you'll hear things like, well, job descriptions don't necessarily paint a full picture or this kind of thing. And it's like, yes, you're, you're right. And if this thing is just analyzing pure keywords or looking for specific things, it's, it's not going to find that it's not going to find that. But as natural language processing has evolved, now it has the ability to interpret and understand some of these things and start to understand the broader context. So it's not just looking for, did it say the word communication? Exactly. It's, it's not looking for that. It's looking for the way it's written to understand, okay, this is a job that's going to require a lot of communication based on the way these activities are described, based on these other words and the interactions between them. This is a heavy communications type role that it can then process that. And I think that's the exciting advancements we're seeing in this, which is taking it to a level that that, that we haven't historically seen. Mm -hmm. And if you combine that with just the raw computing power, like you, you can uh, take then, you can take the skill set of a, a particular individual and then compare that to, let's say, the required skills of thousands of uh, well, roles or vacancies or whatever. Nobody can do that manually. Uh, no. So imagine doing that for your entire organization. That's millions of calculations uh, you can just have at your fingertips and then use that to pinpoint uh, certain areas of improvement uh, and maybe even uh, to, to take that to, uh, to its natural extension. Uh, with our customers in the, the employment and staffing agency, we actually uh, derived something, uh, well, it's called an employability score and it's essentially a metric for how well you, you match to a, a, an intersection of the, the entire job market. And that employability score is a metric, an objective metric for how future-proof your skill set is, in essence. So that's really the power uh, that you have when combining natural language understanding with 
essentially something that can do millions of calculations. Uh, yeah. In, uh, well, and that and that goes to the point of yes, the the algorithms themselves have matured, but the hardware and processing power of the hardware has actually also allowed us to do this exactly. at, at unprecedented levels that we have, which is which is exciting. And I, I guess some people might think terrifying, but I actually think the the pros vastly outweigh the con. So let's let's jump up to the second question that Mike brought up. Um, over at State Farm. And so he was asking about, you know, with the data and the population, right, the amount of data that you're throwing at this thing does matter. So, you know, from this, what, what, how are you assuring predictions or models? You know, how do you, how are you doing to make sure that you actually have the right threshold? And is there a recommended threshold that when you work with an organization, you say, hey, we want to make sure we're not throwing this at an audience of 30 people? You know, what, what does that look like? Yeah, essentially, and that's where the the uh, three to five thousand uh, starting population uh, came from uh, in in the first place. And then it really depends on how you set up your your algorithm. So we have a a pre-trained model that really just interprets text and give you can give you a pretty good estimation of what the the skill set will be. And then again, depending on where you want to use it for, uh, you ideally increase your uh, population size to make sure that you have statistical or they can actually prove statistical uh, or show statistical significance no, that was hard sorry so um we typically try to start with, a, with a population. That's, a, that's an ai <laughs> for you. statistical yeah. significance I say that 10 times fast <laughs> so, <Yeah>. so, <laughs> anyways anyways <laughs> So that's why we typically start with a population size that is uh, that is big enough, but it is a consideration that is, that is really important. Uh, but using a strongly uh, or a strong pre-trained model with a population size that, that's big enough uh, yields uh, the, the best results. Okay. And we've got another question that came in, but before we do, I think what you just said, and this goes back to anybody watching or listening who's thinking about this, because one of the questions I'm always curious about is what is one of the things that you should think about if you're looking at treading into this territory or you're looking at doing this. And one theme that just keeps coming back is, while you probably don't have to have it all figured out, to be thinking about how do we actually want to use this information? Like that is probably one of the biggest questions and not that, not that you might have new ideas or go, hey, we thought of something else, but one of the biggest ones is, how deep do we want to go down the rabbit hole? Because that is going to define a lot of the things we talked about. What is the audience size? What kind of data sources do we, like how far do we want to go with this is going to largely depend on, well, what are you, what are you really hoping your end game with this data is? Mm -hmm. okay. Well, I think I'm, I'm going to give a, a really concrete example here. So what we heard from uh, from our people we were talking to was we want to use natural language processing and natural language understanding to uh, read personal development plans, to have a, a bottom-up approach to actually uh, well, spending our learning and development resources wisely. So I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but there are some statistics saying that a few percentages of uh, learning and development aren't spent that well. Um, so using that to actually see from like, or, or get an idea bottom up or, or, or where you have to spend the resource is I think one of the best use cases. Looking at where the gaps, high level gaps in your organization are, and then using that to funnel resources, funnel attention, uh, funnel your priorities is I think one of the, the best use cases uh, we've seen. Because essentially everybody knows that there's skill gaps, but nobody knows where they are. So making sure that your skill gaps are visible, even on a, on a well, function or group or, or, or business unit or team level is, I think, one of the, the crucial use cases we'll see in the future. Then to actually, to tie to business impact, make sure that you spend your learning and development resources in the right way. Well, and that's that's the exact connection that you know that's drawn between this. You know, if somebody was watching this going, what is what does AI and skill data have to do with learning and development? It's it's well, that's the funnel. That's how we should be looking at this and saying, this is what should be driving and defining our investments in technology, our investments in content, our investments in you know the different audiences that we should be focusing on. We shouldn't be doing this based on gut feel and, well, I think this is what we should have in, in general for our organizations, but where really are we as an organization? What is the talent set that we have and what needs do they have? So I think this is where, while it may feel like a broader HR approach, it doesn't necessarily have to be. And I think there's even opportunity as learning leaders 
to initiate some of these discussions to say, we're spending a lot of money on this stuff and we don't necessarily have the data we need to know where to execute against that. So why don't we do something like this that then gives you an opportunity to feed the broader organization? We could talk about we want to be a strategic business partner. To me, this is like ideal use case of you want to be a strategic business partner, facilitate this discussion with your HR and business leaders of let's figure out what's actually going on in the organization quantitatively so that we can spend our resources well. And yes, that's going to affect workforce planning. That's going to affect strategic business decisions. I mean, it's going to affect a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we have now, uh, we, we have customers going to board meetings, actually having data on what, what is happening and how, how they should spend uh, or, or, or prioritize uh, certain things. And I think just in general, imagine uh, being on a board meeting or, or on, uh, on a meeting where you can report on the employability of your workforce that has increased on the, the key skills, the critical skills that the workforce has gained. I think starting to think about it like that, and, and that's essentially the same transformation marketing has made, using data to inform your decisions gets you a seat at the table. We see that marketing is going to happen with HR, it's going to happen with marketing. Yep. And it's a perfect opportunity to do it. I mean, it, it really exactly. is a perfect opportunity to do it. And we can now do it. The tech is at a maturity level where you can do this in a meaningful way that's going to have impact. So let, let me take another question from, from Colin. He had a follow-up to his one earlier. Um, you know, when we were talking about how this transition from NLP to NL, NLU um, is going, you know, being able to kind of start to predict the different proficiency levels. So his example was, you know, being able to understand how, you know, what degree of project management would you need based on some of this stuff? So I'll let you read the question and answer that one then. Yeah, it's funny because everybody always brings up product, project management. It's, and then the typical follow-up example is, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, project management for the Eiffel Tower or project management for, well, any other things quite different. Yeah. And that's where I think looking at skills or skill profiles as a whole uh, really comes into play. So there's two things. Yes, you can already pick up on proficiency levels by looking at uh, the entire profile. And then two, you're not only looking at project management. Uh, and typically when you're working with artificial intelligence, you're not just looking at project management. You're looking at all the adjacent skills. You're looking at the entire skill profile and seeing how and in which context that project management that was used. So seniority is not, not even the, or proficiency, that's not the only dimension here. You also want to know in which context you have done project management. Of course, there's some transferability, but project management in HR or project management finance are two different things. So yes, uh, you can do it, but it's tricky and, and, and you, you need to distinguish between proficiency and then of course the area in which you apply those skills. But looking at the skill profile uh, from a holistic point of view, uh, we've seen uh, works, uh, works quite well. What's what's funny about that, not funny, haha, but like, right, is the fact that this is such, that's a bit of a mindset shift, I think, for people. I think historically, when we've looked at skills, we've always thought of it in this linear one, two, three. And and in some regards, we've we've been limited to that because, again, we only had so much capacity to look at some of this stuff. And so we were looking at it saying, well, we've got this triage of of this proficiency versus saying proficiency one in a different context may be more important than proficiency two versus one. You may say, actually, it's way more relevant for us to have the skill profile for this specific nuance because these other contexts matter. But, but historically, you just didn't have time or resources to sit and analyze it with that level of complexity to start to understand what is the holistic context of these skills because that context matters Significant. I even think in learning and development, you can say, well, have you done, you know, have you done instructional design? I'm a level three instructional design. I mean, maybe, but that may be very different depending on the environment or the stakeholders or the business function you're going into. That's going to be a very different context than just this nice, clean, clean one, two, three types step. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's just that, that, that binary way of thinking that actually hinders us and that is actually not present uh, in in or when working uh, with artificial intelligence, and I think uh, Gartner has been making a lot of uh, a lot of noise on this on the, the word or the concept skill adjacencies, uh, essentially related skills, similar skills. Uh, but it's it's such a powerful concept. So um, typically, when you would look for one skill, 
and that's where humans almost resort to, to keyword matching, you're focusing on that one skill. But there might be like three or four other skills that are mentioned or that the person has that aren't necessarily that key skill, but are really close related to it, uh, where you have a well, very uh, easy way to, to obtain that other adjacent skill. So I think leveraging, and I'm pretty sure it will happen in the future, uh, but leveraging skill adjacencies uh, is one of the, the key opportunities in learning and development uh, as well. If you're looking for, let's say, uh, an engineer with a specific skill set, uh, it's very hard to hire on the market. Looking at uh, people in your organization that have a, a skill set that is very closely related to it, not uh, necessarily exactly the same, but closely related to it, well, might be an opportunity to redeploy and reskill that individual, especially if that someone uh, has a skill set or a role that is declining in demand. I think a, a typical example would be uh, network engineers and, and cybersecurity engineers. Uh, so those two profiles are quite similar. If you really have a, a need for uh, cybersecurity engineers, well, maybe take a look at your network engineers and you'd find that you'll, you'd be able to, to reskill them quite easily and you solve two problems at once. So having that and then looking at your entire organization uh, and, and spotting those opportunities, that's the business case that, that can make itself. Well, and it's interesting on this topic because if you really think, if you're thinking about it in this sense, one of the things that's interesting is it's like comparing DNA to, I don't know, something much more basic where you can actually really now say, because I, I see two contexts for this where this is really critical. You'll see this in conversations about hiring where you're saying, we have this role, this is the kind of person we need. And so often we approach it from this binary standpoint of, okay, well, it requires this skill and this skill and this skill versus being able to holistically say, what is the unique DNA of somebody who really is able to crush that? And we might now be able to find that in somebody who's not even in a similar role because we can now match the, D the skill DNA profile and say, actually, it's this combination of things in this mixed fashion that actually makes someone successful versus just kind of these traditional categories we've had in the past. And I think the other one specifically for learning and development is we talk about personalization all the time. We really need to personalize. We need to personalize context. We need to personalize development. Well, you can't personalize anything if you don't actually truly understand the audience you're intending to serve. So personalizing is not simply delivering something to somebody the same way, but just in a different place or through a different medium. I mean, it, that's a very poor definition of personalization. Personalization would be really understanding what are the unique contexts and needs that this person has and how do we deliver it, which that bar used to be so high. I see why as an industry, we didn't even shoot for it. But I think now this kind of... Mm -hmm is actually taking us to a place where we can do it. I mean, it's realistic now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I, I think we're really moving from segmentation and putting people in buckets to, to personalization. And the key to doing that is knowing the skills. And like B2C uh, companies have, have known this. If you look at things like engagement, how do you increase engagement? Or ask Netflix, you do personalization. Uh, so knowing that crucial data point uh, to do personalization uh, is, is, of course, uh, paramount to, to making that successful. So you've got all sorts of these now for me, right? You, you're, all this contextual language is extremely helpful, right? Segmentation versus personalization. And I think that is where where we need to move. And we just haven't. We, we I think we're moving into segmentation as an industry. This is newer territory for us. But really, we want to move towards personalization. And this is a key towards that. So, so one of the other things I told you we were going to run out of time and I'm not even like half done with where I want to go with this. But um, so this is I'm sure anybody who would be watching this who's even toyed with this space or dealing with some of these challenges would go, this is valuable. Where do I start, though? Because that that I think is one of the things where I see people in many cases struggle with this. Where, where do I begin? Because this feels big and, and onerous and overwhelming. And I've seen people either spend too much time trying to get everything perfect. It's like when you have guests over, you're like, we're going to get the house perfect before the you know cleaning person comes. You're like, what? Right? That you, you have that context. Then on the other end, it's just like, well, let's just go and do it without really putting any thought into it. What does that balancing act look like? And where where's the best place for people to sit? Um, I, I will have to refer to, to one of our customers here. Uh, that was uh, an, an, an inbound lead, and they had 
a really nice Planova tech. And they wanted, of course, it's something that has been said before, but the right people at the right place at the right time. Uh, they're in Calco. Uh, that industry is going through a huge, huge shift, and they know that people are going to be paramount for that transformation. They had a plan, and they had a very clear idea of how skills fit in that plan. Uh, and then they came, came to us and said, okay, we don't want to wait on people to complete their talent profile. They're not doing it. We've tried it. We've done all sorts of stuff. So we're going to do a first estimation, and then we'll, we're going to ask uh, feedback. Uh, but having a clear plan of attack, having a clear business problem uh, to attack where skills data might be useful. And of course, that, that link between skills data and a business plan might not always be obvious. Uh, but I think this, this goes for any, any uh, te technological investment. Having a plan and looking where skills fit in is the first step. But then, and that's where uh, more, maybe more of a personal conviction, uh, just jumping and seeing what the technology actually can do because it, it, it can be mind-blowing uh, at some time because you, you, if, you, if you've never seen it before, if, if you're not um, well, well, really used to seeing AI technology uh, work, you, it's very hard to conceptualize that you could have an algorithm interpret text and transform that to skills, let's say. So that holds for people within HR, uh, but it also holds for other business leaders. So just having sure that you have the business problem and just jumping uh, is, is, in my opinion, the, the best approach because you, then you can just see the results and you can actually move towards solving that uh, business problem. So there needs to be some degree, and, and we said this earlier, was that you, you, there needs to be some degree of, all right, I have an idea of what we'd potentially like to do with this, where this might actually help. So there's a bit of a business case to build towards that. I think the other one we talked about was at least having some degree of understanding how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? Because exactly. that's going to help shape, shape, okay, well, what kind of things, what size population, what, you know, how are we actually going to target this thing? But then at that, this doesn't need to be something that you have your whole house in order to start actually looking at this. I mean, I, I just, in my head, I'm, I'm picturing the conversations of, well, we'll wait till we finish, like you said, we'll wait until we have everybody's talent profile filled out so that we have that. Well, that's not going to happen in the world. <laughs> so then you're going to end up never doing this kind of thing. And I think those can be the kinds of things where you can say, well, we, we don't need to have all that because again, the goal of this is not to just say, here, just run this algorithm at it. And then whatever it says, we're just going to do. No, there's still this element of critical thinking and analysis around what comes out of that. But again, don't, don't wait for perfection to impede on your progress. Mm -hmm. And then typically, and that's maybe uh, something for the, the audience to think about. We see that the, the business problems are highly verticalized. So for yeah. example, in banking, you would have additional regulation on anti-money laundering. You'd need people in the Know Your Customer KYC department. So a, a very interesting question would then be, okay, who in my current organization could be redeployed to a KYC analyst? Again, you're solving two problems at once. Uh, you're looking at the skills needed for uh, such a role. You're looking at the skills in your organization. And then you can start thinking strategically uh, about your risk department and how you can actually staff your risk department with people that might be uh, in your organization already. Uh, so definitely uh, talk to peers uh, in your industry, uh, I'd say. Uh, talk, to, talk to other vendors even to see what problems they're solving with skills. A lot of people are working uh, in this skill space. You know, essentially, we're all trying to, to solve the same problem. Uh, but I, I, I do see that the, the, the problems are, uh, are typically related to, uh, to the vertical. Okay. I've got one more. We'll see if we can squeak it in. Cause again, I don't, I want to just keep going here, but let me ask you this, because this is, this is actually a personal one for me is, you know, the potential to even really laser focus in on this. If, if an organization said we have this critical role in the business and we need to figure out what is the profile of the right person who is extremely successful in this, is this something you can then harness and focus on that and say, we want to go that far down the vertical into this to really deep dive into figuring out that piece of it? Yeah, typically you see that in an organization, there are a few critical roles. So, and that's, again, I'll try to, to make a short answer. You can look at labor market data. You can look at uh, what the, the skills required for that critical role are, and then you can compare that to what you have in your organization. So okay. the power to think about multiple questions and the power 
to really think strategically about all those maybe at first sight seemingly unrelated use cases from a strategic point of view that's what in my opinion strategic workforce planning is all about all right well we're out of time <laughs> I, knew, I knew we were gonna Sadly. get there i knew we were gonna get there we'll have to have a follow-up discussion or something like this but this was this was fantastic i really appreciate you making the time for this i think this was an important conversation and really a valuable one for people to be thinking about because this is there, there is no better time to be focusing on this kind of stuff, whether you're in L&D, whether you're in you know, talent management, wherever you are, to be thinking about what are we doing with our workforce and how are we truly understanding all this complexity um, and putting it to use. So I appreciate you joining me. Hopefully everybody got something out of it. I have no doubt they did, but um, thank you for the time. And uh, we will definitely talk again. And uh, thanks, everybody. We will be back here later this week.